Radio Mano Papachango. Podcast listeners, this is Chris in Portland, Oregon. Beautiful, sunny day here, lovely day. And uh, yeah, this week's guest is Eric Berkowitz. Eric fucking Berkowitz. He's an author of two fantastic, monumental works uh, about the intersection of sexuality and the law. He's a lawyer. my understanding is he made a shit ton of money and uh, now he only does law when he feels like it. Most of it pro bono work, uh, which means for free for those of you who don't speak Latin, uh, helping people with on asylum cases and so on. We talk a bit about his legal work in the podcast and um, he's written these two books, amazing books. The first one's called Sex and Punishment. Uh, which basically covers the intersection of of legality and sort of sexual legislation and, you know, trying to control sex through law from the beginning of, you know, going way back to uh, the ancient Greeks and Romans, uh, early Christians through the medieval period, right through the 19th century. And then the second book, Uh, which I've got sitting right over there is called the boundaries of desire. And that covers the 20th century up till today. Fantastic books. Now, if it sounds dry and heavy to you, um, rest assured, Eric is a fantastic writer. He's a very witty, fluid. He takes you through all this material with, uh, you know, lightness, um, but also uh, without uh, downplaying the material, without without um, speaking down to you or uh, overly um, digesting, pre-digesting things for you. He's like that great teacher, you know, that you had or you wish you had, who could take um, a lot of material and sort of make it, package it in a way that uh, highlights what's so interesting about what he's talking about. And let's face it, what is more innately interesting than the way societies try to deal with sexuality? The way we try to domesticate the wildest part of us. But before I get to that, I want to read a little poetry. Yes, we're going to do poetry this week with Professor Ryan. Uh, When I was on Dustin's podcast, not Dustin, Duncan's, Duncan's podcast a few weeks ago, I referred to a poem uh, that sort of highlights how much, uh, how generous nature is and, and how that is indication of the presence of some sort of uh, supernatural realm, whether you want to call it God or whatever. Um, and in fact, what I did was I conflated two poems together. And I think, actually, that the second poem by Robinson Jeffers was written in reference to the first poem uh, by Gerard Manley Hopkins. So 
Uh, that's why I confuse them in my head because they're both saying essentially the same thing. And I'll make an argument for why I think Robinson Jeffers was referring to uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins' poem uh, in a minute here. But anyway, um, this is God's Grandeur by Gerard Manley Hopkins, who, as I understand it, was a Christian mystic. He died in 1889, so this was written in, you know, the 1880s probably. I, the, I'm looking at a website, doesn't have the, the date of the poem here, but it says he died in 1889. So uh, it's, you know, industrial era, uh, he was British, <clears throat> he's looking at the, the coal mines and the steam engines and, you know, well into the industrial era. Meanwhile, over in America, they're killing the last of the Indians and, you uh, you know, the railroad has been laid across the West. San Francisco is raging. Um, so that was the state of the world. God's grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. All is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge, and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things, and though the last lights off the black west went, O oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah bright wings. That's a heavy fucking poem right there. I mean, the first stanza, it's two stanzas. The first stanza begins by saying the world is charged with the grandeur of God, right? So the world is beautiful. It's, it's lit by the grandeur of God. It will flame out, flame out. Interesting term because flame out can mean the end of something. Somebody flames out, they're done, right? But what he means here is, is flash. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. What a cool image, like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness, like the ooze of oil crushed. Now, see, now that's the transition because now it's oil. So I don't know if he's talking about petroleum oil. He says crushed. So you, you imagine the oil that comes from seeds when they're crushed, cannabis seeds or sesame seeds or whatever, sunflower seeds. They all produce oil when they're crushed. And then why, why then do, why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. Generations have walked and walked and walked. And here's, it turns real negative now, right? All is seared with trade, right? Everything's about money now. Bleared, smeared with toil. And wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. So everything is fucked. Everything is contaminated with capitalism, with work, with desperation, with humanity, the stench of humanity. The soil is bare now, right? We've, we've washed away the fucking topsoil. We've cut down all the trees, nor can foot feel being shod. 
right? We can't even feel the soil's bare now, but we can't feel it anyway because we wear these shoes. So we've separated ourselves from the destruction that we've done to the planet. And for all this, he says at the beginning of the second stanza, and here's another turning point, another transition, nature is never spent. So even though we fucked it so badly, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. What a line. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, so, and the sun is setting on the west, the negativity, the destruction, the the end times, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs springs right another so he's saying the sun comes up even though the sun goes down in the west the sun's coming up in the east and he uses the word springs comes up springs in the east but he also spring of course spring is is renewal right it's it's all these words resonate in five different levels because the holy ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah bright wings yeah, Gerard Manley Hopkins. That's that's a hell of a piece of poetry there, Jerry. Um, and then we have the next poem is The Excesses of God by Robinson Jeffers. Robinson Jeffers was a very interesting guy. And if I get anything wrong here, please forgive me. I, I studied him back in college in the early 80s. It's been a while. But he, my understanding, my memory is that he was like the most famous poet in America in the 20s, back when being a poet actually meant something uh, before, you know, TV and YouTube. Um, So he was a big shot. He was uh, famous, very well known, very respected. And um, then he, the World War II happened and he was a pacifist and he stuck to his pacifism and his career was basically destroyed because anyone who wasn't you know about killing nazis and japs wasn't an american and so he um you know he stuck to his principles he was an ornery motherfucker he moved to carmel california and bought a uh, beachfront property uh, back when it was just farms and you could buy that kind of property for pennies. And he built a stone tower. I don't know if he built it himself or he had people build it, but he built this stone tower overlooking, you know, on a precipice overlooking the Pacific Ocean in, in Big Sur. And at the top of the tower was his writing room. And he would just go and, you know, walk up the stairs and sit in this tower and, and look out at nature and write. Um, he, he wrote some really beautiful stuff. I remember one of his poems is about how he was lying on a rock after walking around one day and he was just lying there and he noticed a vulture was circling him in the sky and getting closer and closer. And he w- he didn't move because he wanted the vulture to think he was dead. And uh, so he's sort of lying there watching this vulture circling him and thinking about what if I were dead you know what a it would be great to be eaten by a vulture and I remember he uses the word he says what a life after death what an enskyment great word what an enskyment to be eaten by a vulture 
Anyway, this is his uh, his very short poem called uh, The Excesses of God by Robinson Jeffers. Is it not by his high superfluousness we know our God? For to be equal in need is natural, animal, mineral. But to fling rainbows over the rain and beauty above the moon and secret rainbows on the domes of deep seashells and make the necessary embrace of breeding beautiful also as fire, not even the weeds to multiply without blossom, nor the birds without music. There is the great humaneness at the heart of things, the extravagant kindness, the fountain humanity can understand and would flow likewise if power and desire were perchmates. So let's look at this. Is it not by his high superfluousness we know our God? So again, he's making the point that God is recognizable in the waste of beauty, in in the unnecessary beauty. Because he says to be equal in need is natural, animal, mineral, right? To, to, To satisfy the need, that's how evolution works. There's a, there's a niche, it gets filled, right? But it doesn't get overfilled. It doesn't get, there's no sort of like extra effort. It's just what's necessary. That's natural animal mineral, but to fling rainbows over the rain and beauty above the moon and secret rainbows on the domes of deep seashells. That's an image I've never forgotten. Why are there those beautiful rainbows on deep seashells that no one will ever see? Why is there beauty down there where there's no one to see it? And make the necessary embrace of breeding, right? Then you have to fuck to have babies. Why? But it doesn't have to feel that good, right? It could. This is what I was saying with uh, Duncan. It could feel a third that good and we'd still do it. Anyway, he says, make the necessary embrace of breeding beautiful also as fire, right? Fire. What is more beautiful than fire? I could stare into fire for the rest of my life and never get bored. Not even the weeds to multiply without blossom, nor the birds without music. There is the great humaneness at the heart of things. That line, very reminiscent of there lives the dearest freshness deep down things. How many syllables? There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. Ten syllables. Robinson Jeffers, there is the great humaneness at the heart of things. Eh, a couple, a couple more. Um, the extravagant kindness, the fountain humanity can understand, and would flow likewise if power and desire were perchmates. Hmm. So that's another indication to me that he's thinking of God's grandeur because he ends his poem with bright or with uh, perch mates, obviously a, a reference to birds, and Hopkins ends his with bright wings, another reference to birds. Um, and I'm sure there are many other structural uh, resonances that we could find. But it's an interesting idea. There is the great humaneness at the heart of things. He calls it humaneness, and yet he's talking about something that's essentially not human because he says 
the extravagant kindness, the fountain humanity can understand. We can understand it. And we would flow likewise. So, And we would behave in accord with that if power and desire were perchmates. If power and desire worked together and were congruent rather than in conflict, then we would flow like nature. Yeah, Robinson Jeffers, very interesting. Uh, if you're interested in political um, thought, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, he's a very interesting guy to read. And uh, that whole Carmel scene, he knew um, the some of the other luminaries of that period. I'm sure Henry Miller, who was also in Big Sur at the time, uh, and uh, you know some of the sort of early beats. A lot of uh, what later became the hippie movement was already simmering in the 40s and 50s in California. Another thing I wanted to do this week is look at, um, you know, I, I talk often about emails that I get and, and uh, my sort of frustration at, at, on the one hand, feeling honored that people give a fuck what my opinion would be on the things they're confronting in their lives. And yet, um, on the other hand, feeling that um, it's very, very difficult to give advice to anybody, especially people you don't know. I, I'm trained as a psychologist you know, I could charge somebody 150 bucks an hour, um, you know, and, and sort of after 10 hours start to get an idea of maybe what direction they need to go in. Uh, so I definitely, after reading an email, never looking in someone's eyes, never seeing the way they sit, never seeing the way they dress or move or who comes to the office with them or, you know, how they change from week to week, all those things are very important. In, in sort of helping a person uh, choose a path. But so emails are basically impossible. But anyway, I, I thought I would read some of this email uh, just because I get a lot of emails that are pretty similar to it. And so I thought it might be helpful for people to, to know that there are other people out there uh, with facing similar challenges. Um, anyway, this is from a guy. He says, uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I first heard about you when you were on Rogan. Yeah. Uh, read your book and thoroughly enjoyed it. In fact, it loosened me up and I feel better about my life having read it. That's fantastic. I love to hear that. I enjoyed reading it so much. It sent me to the library uh, to get to similar books about social studies, history, and everything. Again, beautiful. I love to hear something that I've written opens people up and makes them want to read more and explore. And, you know, I don't give a shit if you agree with me. Just the fact that you find it worth pursuing these things is, is really wonderful and, and appeals to the teacher in me. Having listened to you on your podcast, I feel that your opinion is helpful to me in my life right now. You sound like you have lived a bountiful life full of experiences, travel, work, and relationships. Yeah. Well, I haven't really done anything, and I'll be turning 26 soon. I work a general labor dead-end job for minimum wage, never went to college. Uh, I've only you know worked in uh, general labor-type jobs for the past eight years, and I really haven't done anything. I don't know what to do. I feel my life is slipping away from me. You're probably asking yourself, so what? What do you want me to do about it? I've heard you say that young people ask you for advice and you don't feel you've earned the right to give it because you don't know how you got where you are in life or something along those lines. Uh, keep reading if you want. If you think this is stupid, just delete the email. 
I'm 26. I've never had a girlfriend or a relationship with a woman. Uh, Very little money, but no debt. Shitty, but reliable car. Dead-end job. I'm not a pothead or alcoholic, uh, and I was raised with very little self-esteem. I'm sorry if this sounds like I'm complaining. I'm just trying to get you to understand a bit about me. I guess I'm trying to ask if you could direct me to something. I picture you as a father figure slash friend, and I never had a father and appreciate men who are learned and cool and have some valuable advice and opinions to give. I don't know what else to say now. Thank you for reading this. Please keep doing what you're doing. So my first feeling when I read this and, and, and when I read a lot of these is this is a good guy. This is a good guy. If, if you're a shithead, you don't write an email like this. Um, and it sort of breaks my heart to, to hear from somebody like this. Um, because if you're raised with very little self-esteem, your tank is always sort of empty. It's very hard. It's like you've got a, a leak in your tank, and no matter how much you pump into it, it just drains away before you can get very far. And... I don't feel that I really am qualified to talk much about that because, honestly, that hasn't been my experience. I've sort of had the opposite experience. If you listen to the Talking Out My Ass episodes, there's one that's called Unconditional Love. And uh, in that, I, I talk about how lucky I feel that my parents and other people, teachers, friends who... I was just very, very lucky that things that could have gone wrong didn't. And people who had a little extra energy and love to give me decided or love to give someone decided to give it to me. And so I grew up with this feeling of um, plentitude and very high self-esteem, higher than it should have been probably. Um, And so I faced a different kind of challenge in sort of toning that down and in allowing myself to fail because I developed this over uh, over bloated kind of sense of my own capacity. So failure was um, devastating. And so then I wouldn't try because if you don't try, then failure doesn't matter. And, you know, some people could say that's why I still haven't finished the book I'm supposed to be writing right now. Uh, but not to be psychoanalyzing myself because I can't afford it. Um, you know, someone who's in a situation like this, you say, well, fuck, dude, you're, you need a plan, right? And I don't know the extent to which that plan includes therapy to try to plug up those leaks in the tank and try to deal with, uh, the uh, self-esteem issues and you know to be honest how does a guy who's working for minimum wage afford therapy you know even if he finds a good therapist in this area wherever he's living he doesn't say where he lives Um, he doesn't talk about friends he doesn't talk about siblings or family at all he says he's never had a girlfriend or relationship with a woman so that suggests to me that there's some possibly some psychological um, issue from the family dynamic that uh, plays out in terms of him being uncomfortable with women or um, unable to, to relate to women. So 
um, you know, there's just so much missing information. Uh, and I'm not, if you're listening to this, I'm not saying send me all that information because, you know, I'm not your, I'm not your therapist. But um, there are a lot of, I guess what I'm saying is this is why uh, it's impossible to really deal with these sorts of things um, based on an email because there's so much more that you would really need to know before you get a sense of really who this person is. Having said all that, I guess the advice that I give, blanket advice, is come up with a plan. You know, you're you're in fucking jail, man. You got to come up with an escape plan. And that's got to start with you looking deeply into a mirror, into your own eyes for a long time and saying, you know, answering the question, do you want out? Do you really want out? Because some people... You know, if you're raised in a cage, you that's the only place you're really going to be comfortable. So it's easy to say, I want out of here, but then you get out and you turn around and you walk right back in. So the first question is, do you really want out? Do you really want out? If you do, then you got to make a plan and you got to stick to it. And you got to understand that the minute you start making the plan, you're already on the road to escape. Because... Escape doesn't begin when you break out. Escape begins when you start thinking about breaking out. That's part of the process. You don't decide to break out and then just, you know, walk over and punch a hole in the wall and walk out. That's not how it works, right? You got to dig a hole. You got to, you know, you know, unless you're, uh, what's his name? El Chapo. Um, you know, you don't get a tunnel built for you. You've got to build it yourself. So what's that mean? I don't know. Where, where do you want to go? What do you want to do with your life? Um, for me, it was travel for other people. It might be love. You might want to be a dad. You might want to have kids. You might, I don't know what your aspiration is, but if you feel you're trapped, the first thing you got to decide is, can you be happy not being trapped? Would you really be happy escaping? If the answer to that is yes, then you got to start plotting your escape. One thing I think about a lot is if I were in my 20s and this guy doesn't have education, he doesn't have, seems like he doesn't have work experience that's really applicable to much, but he's a good guy. He's an honest, sincere person who's got clear eyes, I'll bet. Now, I would be looking personally, if I were in my 20s, I'd be looking at alternative energy because if there's a fucking future there's going to be a lot of solar panels and windmills and all that kind of shit is going to be involved. So what does that mean? It means if you're doing manual labor bullshit, do manual labor bullshit in something that's meaningful. Get on a, a, a crew that's installing solar panels or putting up windmills, wind turbines. Get on a crew, meet people who are doing that and... Yeah, you're not going to go to college. You're not going to go into debt. That would be stupid. But, you know, you can you can be fucking fixing flat tires or cutting down trees or installing solar panels. And you're going to get minimum wage for any of those jobs when you're starting off. But if you start off at the bottom of a mountain that you want to climb that would be meaningful to you, then you're not wasting your time. Then you're not just fucking, you know, punching in, punching out. You're doing something 
where you're meeting people in that business. You're proving yourself to people that you work for. You're proving that you're the guy who shows up on time. You're the guy who puts in the extra effort. You're the guy who gives a shit about this job. You're going to rise to the surface. You're going to rise like a bubble. Because I'll tell you, everywhere I've worked, every job I've been in has been full of incompetent, lazy-ass motherfuckers. So if you have energy and you have sincerity, I don't give a shit if you've not, if you got a shitty but reliable car and you've never had a girlfriend and you don't have an education. If you're that guy who's got sincerity and energy and focus, you are going to come to the attention of people who need you. And once you come to the attention of someone who needs you, you're not making minimum wage anymore. That's when you're on the road up. So... My advice to anyone that age is, yeah, you're at the bottom. You're going to be at the bottom. There's no way. I don't give a fuck what you do. Unless your daddy owns the company, you're not going to walk in as some sort of mid-level, you know, 60 grand a year position. You're going to start at the bottom. But pick the mountain that you want to climb. Pick the mountain you want to be higher up on. Don't waste your time on the bottom of a mountain you don't even want to fucking climb. Pick something that's got a future. Picks, you know, don't don't pick working on, you know, fucking whatever, you know, uh, putting horseshoes on or fixing wagons in the 1880s. That's about to end. Right. So look at the world as it is right now. What's going to be big in 10, 20, 30 years from now? That's what you need to be getting into. And I can't tell you because I don't know what your interests are, but that's my advice. Okay, I realize I'm going on quite a bit longer than usual this week, but what the hell, it's unscripted. I just also want to thank everybody who's been buying stuff through the Amazon page. Uh, Someone wrote to me and said that you can actually uh, go to my website, click on that Amazon page, and then pull that down to your bookmark bar. And that Amazon link, then you can just click on your bookmark bar. You don't need to go to my website every time. Um, so that's worth doing if you, uh, I guess on Chrome or Firefox, you can do that. I'm not sure about Safari, but check that out. It's a, it's a nice way, you know, not to forget. Um, I just looked at the month to date report and there's some really cool stuff that people are buying. Somebody bought the iHeart Raves glitter tutu black with blue glitter tutu, uh, for $15.95 and I got a buck twelve out of that. So thank you, whoever's buying the tutus out there. Uh, a lot of really cool stuff. Somebody bought some Hermes men's toilet spray for $65. Are you kidding me? For 3.3 ounces? Okay. Well, I got four bucks out of it. The podcast got a $4 uh, contribution from whoever spent $65 on toilet spray. Um, cool. Uh, what else? I saw some, oh, three copies of A Renegade History of the United States by podcast guest Thaddeus Russell. Very cool. I'm always happy to see people buying books by authors that have been uh, recommended or that have uh, spoken here on the podcast. Three copies of Desert Solitaire. Very cool. Edward Abbey. A uh, copy of Heart of Darkness. copy of In Pharaoh's Army. These are all great books that I've recommended at one time or another on the podcast. A few copies of Sex at Dawn. Shitty book. Don't bother. Uh, Slaughterhouse Five. Excellent book. Excellent book. Um, then we've got somebody. I suspect it might 
it might have been Justin Alexander, who I had on the podcast. I haven't posted it yet, but I interviewed him a couple weeks ago. He mentioned to me that he was about to buy a really nice camera. So I don't know if it was him. If it wasn't him, I apologize to whoever it was. But somebody bought a really nice fucking Sony camera and lens, zoom lens, 24 to 240 millimeters. Holy shit. For about four grand. Nice. Uh, so whoever that was, thank you very much. I, you know, the podcast got 150 bucks out of that. So that's pretty sweet. Uh, there's some other crazy things. There's a handheld scalp massager pack of two, uh, and (laughs) all sorts of other weird shit here. Hold on. The usual, um, two gallon jug of sex lube. So, uh, thanks to whoever bought that seems to buy that every month. I don't know if it's the same person. That's pretty scary. Anyway, thank you again for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. I hope I didn't bore the fuck out of you by talking for over half an hour before we actually get to the podcast. I promise I won't do that often, but I thought it would be fun to do a little poetry this week and also to um, to talk about um, the emails. Enjoy this conversation with Eric Berkowitz. He's a very smart guy. If it's a little confusing, uh, I tried to put it all together so it makes sense. This happened over two weeks um, because the we the technical problems the first time, so we had to pick it up a week earlier. So there might be a little repetition, but I hope not too much. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next week. This is a little tune uh, by a podcast listener uh, named Bobby Lee, Bobby Lee Hill. And uh, you can check out more of his music at www.reverbnation.com slash Bobby Lee Hill. It's called In Between the Lantern. Hello, my name is Bobby Lee. This is uh, an original song. It's called In Between the Lantern. Our shadows dancing I've been teaching this autumn
automaton to sing And I have dressed him in a few of my old things So maybe he could be for you what I could never be But there's a vital missing piece Just wood and string. He just acts. He doesn't think. He is just wood and string. He just walks and talks and doesn't mean anything. He God damn it, in the time it's taken me to, you know, uh, write half a book, you've written a huge book and had it published. So somehow someone that looks like me wrote that. What the hell is going on down there? I I have (laughs) free time on my hands, Chris. (laughs) Well, it can't be as much free time as I've got. Uh, well, I, you don't do a podcast, though. The podcast is is that that's that must be it. I'll blame it on the podcast. Yeah, blame it on the bossa nova or the podcast. Exactly right. Um, I've got in my hands a copy, a fresh, warm, f- fresh from the oven copy of the Boundaries of Desire: A Century of Bad Laws, Good Sex, and Changing Identities by the one and only Eric Berkowitz. Uh, and I think there's a blurb. Yep, look at that. There's a blurb from me right on the back cover. Isn't that nice? 
Yeah, Chris, you were actually one of my first supporters. You also blurbed the first book, and that uh, gave me instant credibility and fame around the world. <laughs> instant credibility. That's funny. Uh, yeah, so, okay, if I, you know, if I find myself in jail, I guess you're the guy to call then, right? Absolutely. I owe you big time. I've got, a, I've got a lawyer who owes me a favor. What could be better than that? <laughs> I don't know, but uh, I'm glad to owe you something, Um, and I'm really glad to uh, be interviewed by you, because I remember our last podcast, which we did, I think, in 2012, was one of the more interesting interviews of, uh, of that cycle. Well, that one we did in person, which is always preferable. We're on Skype now, so we'll do our best. But um, I mean, first of all, before I turned on the mic, we were talking about uh, very briefly, you know, you asked how the book is. And um, it's, uh, you know, I found myself very distracted by um, sort of maintaining the momentum of the first book of Sex at Dawn. and your book, similar to the, to the book I'm working on now, um, this book is in some ways a continuation of your first book, isn't it? Absolutely. It you know, picks up uh, where the last one left off with Oscar Wilde and carries us into the present day. Right. I remember you saying in, in that earlier conversation that, uh, you know, sex, you, you sort of had to pick a point to stop sex and punishment, because if once you got into the 20th century, that was at least another book. Yeah, that and also I was trying to put myself in the position of the reader. Once we get into to the 20th century, we start getting into our own lives or the lives of our parents and our grandparents. And when we started talking about the rules governing sex and the mindset behind the rules governing sex, we started talking about ourselves. And I've found writing this book that uh, people take that a hell of a lot more seriously uh, (laughs) and a lot more personally because, in fact, bringing up at a dinner party that I'm writing a book about modern sex laws is probably the best way to kill a conversation because uh, people get embarrassed and then if they, they get worried that if they start asking questions that were too specific, they might implicate themselves in some way. So the first book dealt with, you know, ancient history going on through the 19th century. And, you know, you can keep kind of a detached view from that and almost, you know, take a more humorous view. But my God, people are serious when it comes to sex law uh, in the modern age. And they seem to lose their sense of humor very, very quickly. Eric, what that tells me about you is that you're going to the wrong cocktail parties. (laughs) <laughs> you need some new well, friends Yeah, San Francisco's kind of a humorless place I set up shop here a few few years ago And there's sort of a Kind of a deadly liberalism here That, I mean, I'm very much on the left politically But uh, you can't take yourself too seriously If you do, you're really cutting off uh, A lot of the enjoyment of life but anyway, I, I made the decision to sort of cut the first effort off at the uh, dawn of the 20th century because really also with the rise of mass communications and with everything else in the population explosion, everything really began to move at hyperspeed. And so it made sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and also, as you said, that change in uh, shift in perspective from talking about distant 
exotic people to talking about our grandparents and ourselves. That's a major, you have to write that differently too, don't you? You do. Uh, I, I, I used a lot more humor in the, uh, in the, in the first book and in the second book, I, you know, I still tried to turn a phrase, but at the same time, there were always a lot of comments from various editors saying, Oh, this, this group is going to get offended here. That group is going to get offended here, there. And, uh, I generally disregarded those because uh, I don't believe that you could have that we all need to agree with each other all the time. And so at times I'll side with the, quote, right, times I'll side with the left. But you have to, when you're writing about modern events, um, sort of take into account more than I would normally do people's feelings. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. It, you know, the problem is editors are trying, uh, you know, to have the broadest possible unoffended audience. And I'm not convinced that that's really the best approach to be taking in the modern world. I don't either. I'm with you all the way. When we talk about things like pornography and sex, sex trafficking, homosexuality, someone's always going to be angry. And you shouldn't shy away from that. I don't want I definitely didn't set out to uh, write a book that would uh, confirm people's already held beliefs or, you know, make them particularly feel good. The idea, as as with your work, is to is to rattle people a bit and get them to think about life a little bit differently than maybe they did before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, even if you're not setting out to rattle people, you're setting out to tell the truth and the truth is inherently uh, subversive in in this world. I think the truth about sexuality is subversive, you know, at any point since the dawn of agriculture, probably. Um, Agreed. Yeah. So uh, before we get further in this, just to let people know that you're a human rights lawyer, uh, you've written uh, it was was Sex and Punishment your first book? It was. Yeah. So now you're, uh, uh, you know, two time offender in the uh, publishing world. And uh, yeah, you're, uh, you know, you're sort of a ubiquitous figure out there in the Washington Post, L.A. Weekly, Los Angeles Times, Huffington Post, yada, yada, yada. Have you had anything in Playboy yet? You know, I was on Playboy radio, which uh, I thought would be. A really stupid interview, but the woman, I forgot her name, was incredibly intelligent. Oh, was she like a former playmate? I didn't ask her that. She had a former playmate voice. (laughs) But she definitely definitely had, and it's really not a but, and she definitely had a good mind. And she had read the book really carefully. Chris, I know you've experienced this. When you're interviewed by people, you could tell in three seconds whether they've read your book or not. Mm-hmm. And and she had. And uh, so my smug attitude toward Playboy evaporated immediately. That was a really good, good interview. But no, I haven't been in the hallowed pages of Playboy yet, although I talk about Playboy. Yeah, I, uh, I had an interview. Maybe it was with the same woman on Playboy when I was in L.A. Uh, did you do it in person or was it on the phone or something? I did it on the phone while I was in a courthouse. I was <laughs> I was in a courthouse doing this crazy case, and uh, honestly, I had forgotten about the interview. And my my phone began to light up, 
So I stole off and I looked like some creep in the corner, you know, whispering <laughs> in, in, into his phone. But that was the setting of that interview. That's if anyone bothered to listen, I probably would have been arrested. Yeah. Well, if it was the same woman, uh, I had exactly the same experience. I went in. Actually, Cassie and I went to the studios in L.A. They were out in, in like some crime ridden warehouse district where, you know, I thought we were going to, you know, probably be killed going from our car to the studio. And we get in there and it's this, you know, kind of cheap and, and this, you know, whatever, sleazy kind of vibe. Um, and we walk by the studio and she's in there and she's, you know, obviously a playmate kind of woman. And, and I'm thinking, oh, come on. And, and in the green room, we could hear the interview or whatever was happening before my segment. And it was it's all spicy. Yeah, it was just, you know, dumb truck driver stuff or whatever. And then and I actually was sort of thinking of walking out, you know, like, do I really want to be doing this? This is stuff. And then I went into the studio and sat down with her. And it was one of the most intelligent, insightful, well-researched. It was amazing. And and she got really uh, personal. We were talking about. Um, you know, the argument in Sex at Dawn that biological paternity really isn't that big a deal in hunter-gatherer societies, and we're wrong to assume that it's this universal human obsession. And, uh, and, and she started talking about how she had adopted a child a few years earlier and how she can't imagine loving a child more than she loves that child. And the fact that there's not this DNA, she talked very movingly about, you know, the experience of adopting a child. And in other words, it was exactly the opposite of the kind of interview I was expecting. I was expecting superficial fluff and it ended up being, you know, very emotional and and personal and revealing. It was quite beautiful. Um, You know, and then I went and had a three away with her and her twin sister. (laughs) Are we back on uh, recording? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to make sure that that was <laughs> You thought that was something I'd never say while it was recording? <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Um, so uh, I, there's actually a, a journalist in Portland right now who's writing a profile of me for Playboy. Interesting. Sort of following me around. It's, it's a strange, strange thing. Um, anyway, so back to the book. So are you a glutton for punishment? Uh, why are you writing about the most uh, provocative, uh, you know, um, uh, controversial topic imaginable? Is this just sort of your natural interest or your career path? Or what is, what is it that leads you to be doing this? Well, it started with the first book. It started with me trying to find, yeah, trying to, let me start again. It started with the first book and my interest in trying to tell uh, the interaction of law and life as it's actually lived. And the first laws that I could find were the ancient Mesopotamian laws, which dealt in a very imbalanced way with sex. And it struck me that if those were really some of the first laws written, that those are really some of the major concerns that we have in the use of law to govern people's lives. And so I found that sex is a way in. Sex is this intensely personal experience, this intensely sort of visceral experience we have that is also a real big concern of the law. And so, you know, people have written books 
uh, about salt and tulips and all these other things as a way. And I think that those sort of operate on the on the periphery in dealing with sex and how we judge the sex of others. I think we're sort of dealing with how we view ourselves and how we view others and how we want society to be ordered at all. It's a good subject and it keeps my interest. Yeah. Yeah, that's Which pretty much to do. Exactly. That, that's that's what led me into Sex of Dawn is just the only thing I could stay interested in long enough to write a damn book. It was at this moment that Skype betrayed us and we lost our connection. Uh, so we uh, reconvene a week later, picking up the conversation more or less where we left it off. But if we repeat ourselves, please forgive us. It's hard to remember what you say in these things. Um, anyway, back to the conversation with Eric Berkowitz a week later. He's now no longer in San Francisco. He's in Hollywood getting ready to do a reading at a bookstore in Hollywood that night. Uh, all right. So give me a sound check. Hello there. My name is Eric Berkowitz and I write a lot about sex. <laughs> you do. You do. All right. Good. I'm recording. Eric Berkowitz, you write a lot about sex. Why the hell do you write so much about sex? Are you some kind of pervert? I am. I thought I would take this opportunity to make my confession. Um, yeah, that's the reason. Also, because it's a pretty good subject for getting into a lot of other aspects of human nature. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a window into all sorts of. I you know I the way I answer that question is that <laughs> <laughs> which comes up um, is. Uh, you know, I, I'm really interested in distinguishing the human from the cultural, from the personal, right? And so sort of species level characteristics versus cultural characteristics versus individual. And so you have to look at things that resonate in all those on all those different levels, like sexuality, food, altered states of consciousness, music. You know, there are things that sort of permeate those different uh, strata. And uh, I think sexuality is definitely one of the the strongest. But also, I would say that, uh, you know, how we deal with criminal, so-called criminal behavior is another one of those things, right? All societies have rules. They all have different ways of enforcing those rules and articulating them. So I think you've sort of picked two things that, um, you know, permeate through those different strata of human experience. I do. I, it, what's, what's interesting about the rules aspect is, wait a second, Chris, yep. you sound like now, you, when I talk with you, you sound like you're in, like, in the middle of an ocean wave. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like, like, like we're surfing, but okay, I'll, I'll just talk against that. Um, let's start again. Yeah, I think that the rules involving sex... Wait a second. Are you in a truck right now? Nope. I'm sitting in my office. All right. It's like, it's this. can you turn maybe your mic down a little bit? Um, my mic doesn't have a volume control. You sound fine to me. Uh, yeah. You, you should turn down the volume on your end. If, if I'm coming through loud, turn down your computer volume or whatever. Okay, how's that? Yeah. All right. Got it. Does that sound better? Yeah. All okay. right. You know, sex involves, I think, factors two or three of what you were talking about very, very heavily. We set rules to set cultural norms, but these rules really affect what is personal. 
And in many ways, what's personal when it comes to the sexual urge is pretty constant. I mean, we all feel similar things, but as cultures change and evolve, the rules change and evolve, and what they choose to enforce changes and evolves. And they really never stay the same. It's a very dynamic thing, which is perhaps uh, distinguished from food, because no one ever really questions the need to eat food. No one ever really questions the need for nourishment. But the need for sex and the need for sex in certain forms is questioned constantly. Well, okay, I take your point, but um, the need for food in certain forms is questioned, right? I mean, there are vegetarians, vegans, paleo. There are all sorts of movements saying, you know, what to eat, what not to eat, what's healthy. Is cholesterol healthy or not this week, right? Eggs. Yeah, are are 74-ounce Cokes good for you or, you know, (laughs) should they be ruled or not? Yes, but even on that level, the basic need to eat is never questioned. Is the basic basic need to to procreate, to fuck? The basic need to fuck (laughs) over history has been questioned heavily because at least under Christianity, uh, the urge to fuck has been set as a sort of spiritual compromise, you know, Mm. and, and, you know, we're, that doesn't necessarily, in Western culture, set the tone for the law anymore, but there are still holdovers. And, you know, there are, for example, we have many, many rules in place to prevent people from fucking and also penalizing for having the urge to fuck, if you want to put it like that. We have upwards of 800,000 people on sex offender lists, uh, you know, for essentially punished for what is perceived to be their urges and what they might do about their urges uh, as time passes. The whole theory behind those things are, are is, is, you know, is plainly wrong. But the, you know, questioning, monitoring, interrupting the sexual urge of a pretty substantial portion of the population is very much uh, an aim of the law. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. I even, you know, look at the way we treat adolescents. You talked about sex offenders. A lot of them are adolescents who got caught, you know, with the wrong on one end or the other of the the wrong side of the age divide, the age of consent, which is something that's always shifting, as you say. Um, oh, God, we yeah. can we could talk about we could talk about that several ways. I mean, as the age of consent was raised over the course of the past hundred years from 10 and 12 to 18, uh, that didn't really interrupt the distrust that we have toward children and adolescents and their sexual urges. Don't forget that when the age of consent was raised, it was only raised for, for virgins. Okay. There was a chastity requirement put on children to enjoy, if you will, the protection of the age of consent laws. If a girl was found to be uh, not a virgin or even to have a rather developed sexual appetite, uh, it all of a sudden became extremely difficult for a man to be convicted for having sex with her. Even though the age of consent laws are premised on the fact that kids can't make a reasoned decision whether or not to have sex. 
And when you talk about adolescence on sex offender laws, <clears throat> I'm right now working on a very long piece uh, for the Washington Post about putting kids on the sex offender laws. Kids, I mean 10-year-old kids. Excuse me. I'm now working on a very long piece for the Washington Post about putting kids on the sex offender registries. And when we're talking about kids, I mean 9-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds. It's insane because this is the exact population that we're supposed to be protecting. But at the same time, we're marking them as sex offenders, often for life. So, you know, the existence of the sexual urge, whether it be in kids, whether it be in adolescents, and whether it be in adults, is something that I think the law is never comfortable with, although it should be. And certainly the law is comfortable with the existence of hunger and the, and the existence of the urge to eat. I maintain that the urge to fuck is all is, you know, very, very close to the urge to eat in all of us. Uh, but it's something that the law just can't seem to wrap its head around. Interesting. When you were talking about the how the age of consent only applied to virgins, I was wondering if that's the origin of the line of questioning in rape trials where, you know, they they sort of assume that they've got the right to know the sexual history of the victim and that that's relevant. It very much is. It very much is. It's it, it, And I think that's really perceptive. The distrust of the victim is, you know, permeates sexual uh, law throughout, whether it be rape, whether it be age of consent laws, and whether it be sexual harassment laws. I mean, the the same sort of uh, distrust can be found in a hundred different ways. Uh, you know, starting in the 17th century, the idea of men being falsely accused by women uh, who are seeking to harm them through rape accusations became, you know, very, very strong. That was laid down by the Chief Justice of England. And so when that, let's say, that doctrine came into modern psych psychology, when we began to embrace the unconscious, when the law began to em embrace the unconscious, it created a very, very bad brew because the, all of a sudden the law was very, very quick to embrace the idea that women uh, want to be raped, that many of them you know, really want to be ravaged. And why should men be penalized criminally for merely fulfilling what the woman really wants? Now, OK, I, I'm not saying I agree with any of this. I think it's ludicrous and I think it's, you know, it's oppressive. But yes, the idea of, a, how can I put it, a suitable victim, okay, uh, of, of a victim being worthy of the law's pr protections uh, runs very, very strongly through sex law. Yeah, yeah. And when you were talking, I was just thinking, uh, you know, you, you were saying uh, you'd uh, the whole idea that maybe the woman just wanted it and so the man is protected from the law's vengeance uh, sort of flips over when you've got a black man involved with a white woman. Even if she explicitly wanted it, he's still uh, a, a criminal and he's still likely to be lynched or, you know, whatever. I mean, th that was... Well, you know, in my book, I have several examples 
of juries being inst being instructed by judges that you must presume you must accept the fact that no white woman would ever want to have sex with a, a black man <laughs> that that a uh, truly that a black man is per se revolting to a white woman yeah and so you know given all this that you were saying the idea uh, of going back to the non-racial questions of looking into a woman's sexual past and saying, well, if she consented once, then it's likely that she consented again. If she has a sexual history, or let's just put it in a less oppressive way, if she has an active sexual life, then that all of a sudden made her less worthy of the law's protection than uh, a woman who was a blushing virgin. We sort of get back to the same idiotic Madonna whore dichotomy that, you know, we've been living with for quite a long time. And so, you know, we we passed something called rape shield laws in the 1970s and 80s, which was particularly to protect women from having to go through, you know, the uh, no, the the hardship and the and the pain of having to account for her entire sexual life. But, you know, it doesn't take a lawyer with more than a B plus skill to find your way around that. And so truly women still slut shaming is alive and well. well it's sad, but that's just the truth. Right. Right. And, and we're talking about one of the like, legally, at least I assume one of the more advanced countries in the world here in the United States. We're supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Supposedly. Um, is there, you know, you've got, you've, how long have you been working as a lawyer? Oh my gosh! About uh, since 1984, you can do the math. A long time. <laughs> 31, yeah, I'm too old to do the math. Um, yeah. Okay. So you've been doing it a long time, and and you work. What, what were your areas of specialization or focus? Uh, you know, it's funny. The areas of my specialization did not have a lot to do with sex, although I do have one case that I can tell you about, which is interesting. I did intellectual property, entertainment, that sort of thing. Right. Okay. Oh, that's right. I remember you, you told me some yeah. stories about LA last time we met. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Many. Many. Do you think, is, is there something, I mean, you, I guess my point that what I'm getting at here is that you've looked at um, American society through the prism of the law uh, for a long time from a lot of different perspectives. And now you're, you're doing this work, comprehensive, very thorough study of Western society. Your first book, uh, sort of from the origins of Western civilization through the 19th century, and now your current book. Um, the boundaries of desire, the 20th century, you, you know, you're sort of a modern day Foucault, although, you know, I, I don't know what your feeling about him is, but you're, you're really looking for this very comprehensive understanding here. Is What is it about sexuality that makes it so unique? What is it that makes us unable to be rational about it? Or, or would you d uh, question the premise of that question? Uh, no, I don't question the premise of that question at all. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of Foucault. I find him extremely dense, and uh, I think he really needed a pretty good editor, although he was, he was you know, brilliant in many ways. One of the things that he said that I turn to often is Foucault said that sex is a very dense transfer point for power, 
you know, and and I found that line, that particular observation popping up in my head often. All right. If we take sex as a universal, if we take the sex urge as a universal and if we take it as a constant, meaning that mostly all of us feel this urge, at least, you know, in our up through our middle age pretty consistently and we often will do something about it that that uncontrollableness that that insistence of the sexual urge has become uh if not a convenient point a uh, a very reliable setting for the law to exert power over people's personal lives and i think once you get power you don't want to give it up you simply want to expand it you know, if you want to reach even further back, like way further back, St. Saint, Saint Augustine back in the 4th century, the 5th century, I forget which at this moment, saw the genitals as something other than, than the body and the mind. He saw them as little dictators, that uh, little fleshy dictators that, that drive us to behave in ways that take us farther from God. And so that notion of people being subject to pray to their genitals, uh, you know, calls for rules, calls for curbs uh, to, you know, to, to put walls around them. And so why is it that the law leads us towards irrationality? Because we're, we're all subject to it. And the idea of trying to put culturally you know, determined rules on what is a constant, I think often leads towards crazy, crazy results, such so, as what we were talking about a moment ago with respect to children. Yeah. Children very much have sexual urges, but we've determined that they shouldn't. But yet we distrust the fact that they actually do. Yeah. So we don't quite know what to do about it. I, you know, if we focused ourselves solely on the questions of power, as Foucault does, and the misuse of power, the misuse of force, and I think that the law would have a much clearer vision. But it goes further. It goes to deal with the sexual urge itself rather than the misuse of power that people exert toward each other. Right, right. Yeah, and that, that's a very um, American approach to the law. You know, this question of trying to legislate intent as opposed to um, action. You know, absolutely. That's a, that's a well put. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange thing. I mean, there are people in jail for for thought crimes in this country. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the guy who was I guess he was uh, on the sex offender registry and he wrote in his journal like fantasies about having sex with kids. And his mother found the journal and turned it over to his probation officer and the guy went back to prison. He never touched anyone. He never did yeah. anything. He just yeah, thought about it and wrote it. Well, I think that is Law's sort of imperfect embrace of psychology and the social sciences over the last century. Uh, you know, it's like they've all taken survey courses and gone quite <laughs> no further than that. But we've gone from really punishing people for what they do to punishing people for what we for who that we think they are, I will do you one better than the mom finding the son's journal. There was this one guy very recently 
who liked child pornography. And possessing child porn is a federal crime. Okay, so that so he he was caught. He had it. No one's going to defend child porn. It's a bad thing because kids are going are getting oppressed in the making of that porn. But uh, he served his sentence. I mean, a really long sentence. I forget, like 10, 15, 18 years. And and after he served his sentence, they flipped him over to a mental hospital with locked doors because a psychiatrist said, a psychiatrist said, I think because he likes child pornography, and he admitted that he still liked it, he may one day want to go and rape a child. So we're going to keep him locked up because we think one day he might act on his urge. So I just saw the film Taxi Driver the other night, um, which, you know, old film that I dearly love, which ended with, you know, uh, three or four people being shot. If I liked that film, if I liked what that person was doing, if I liked what went on, does that mean that I'm going to one day do that myself? Yeah. Right. But, uh, you know, that's what we're doing. And, you know, it's not that there are lawmakers sitting in some, you know, marble room someplace trying to figure out how to be rotten people. I think, you know, very often the intent of a lot of these laws is probably, you know, salutary. But at the same time, we just have this in, I think, kind of a fetishistic way. We sort of have this inability to stop, you know. There, we have sex offender laws. We have sex offender laws for good reasons, to keep track of the, of the usual suspects who repeatedly violate children. Okay, no one's going to argue with that. But we simply can't stop. We keep on expanding the list of crimes on it, expanding what you can do to get on it, and making life so miserable for sex offenders that they're almost uh, have no choice but to commit robberies, et cetera, in order to live. You know, you said in an almost fetishistic sense that that triggered that rang some bells in my head i'm not sure i can articulate this but i i sometimes feel like in a society that is so um sort of terrified of sexuality as american society is and so negative about it that you create a pressure cooker situation so you know, when I come to this country from Spain, I, I've the first thing I feel is like, wow, this is not sexy in America. It's a really unsexy place, but people are so fucking obsessed with sex here. You know, whereas in Spain, I feel like there's sex in the air, but it's not that obsessive, weird, conflicted, self-hating energy. It's a it's a celebration and a a flowing of sexuality. It's a very different kind of experience. And it's um, not, and it's not always fo- followed by a condemnation of others. It's you can enjoy rarely, sex rarely. without necessarily saying, "And you're a pervert, right. and that person's wrong." And you know, yes, yeah. I I lived in Western Europe also for quite a while, and there is a lot more sex in the air there, but it's rarely followed by the scolding that seems to follow the sexual urge here. Yeah. Right. So the, the public scolding, you know, why, why did you, you know, the male gaze, you've objectified me or the private scolding of, of oneself. You know, I'm a potential rapist because I, you know, see an attractive woman or something. Um, so and I it, let my mind wander for a few minutes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So without getting too far into all that, um, 
the what I what your your phrase that fetishistic uh, phrase uh, triggered for me was this idea that there's all this uh, suppressed erotic energy, and a lot of it I think does come out in vengeance, in violence, and you know like the way the the most vocal uh, homophobe is the closeted homosexual. I can't help feeling like inevitably, yeah. yeah, like like a lot of the the nastiness of American uh, legal structure and mechanisms toward sex offenders, toward you know all these sort of um, prostitutes, ab- prostitutes, abstinence only, you know, school programs, like this 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 insane, stupid, ignorant, willful approach to sexuality that's celebrated in, in many parts of this culture, to me, seems to be itself an expression of sexuality. Yeah, one of the lines that I opened the book up with uh, is that the urge to control sex seems to be about as strong as the urge for sex itself. And uh, I can't really explain to you why that is, except for simply to, like yourself, identify that it is. <laughs> um, I think to some extent we're very uncomfortable with our sexuality. We're very uncomfortable. I mean, reaching back to St. Augustine and all the other layers of shit that were, you know, that came after him were uncomfortable with the sexual urge. And by scolding others, by setting lines, by setting rules, we somehow acquit ourselves. You know, one of the things that, that I say in the, um, in the, conclusion of the book, and I think we talked about this earlier, is very few things derail conversations more than saying, I'm writing a book about sex law. People get very twittery and somehow I found, and I know you said earlier, you know, you go to the wrong parties, but people are, uh, people are, I've noticed it and I'll see it tonight. I'm going to a book signing in West Hollywood and I've, I've seen it every single time. People can't ask a serious question about this without some kind of smirk or without some kind of <laughs> some kind of telepath, some kind of signal that it's not me. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm asking uh, for a friend. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I have a friend who thinks she's pregnant. And uh, yeah. And, and and, you know, it's it's an unfortunate thing. But there it is. I mean, we have this notion and it's from the left and the right. I mean, I, I don't know where you stand politically at this point. I don't particularly care. But the 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 really strong scolding urge comes not only from the usual suspects like the evangelical right, but also from the very, very far left. And I'm going to lose a lot of friends right now from the you know, from the far left feminists who have made common cause with the Christian right to push a series of measures which not only seek to curb abuses of power in the course of sex, but to almost reverse the sexual revolution itself. Uh, when you see advertising and you see like some half-naked girl advertising a car or a power tool or something along that, and you say that that ad is going to lead some guy to commit rape, uh, you know, that sexual imagery causes rape or causes sexual violence, then you're getting into a position where you're perpetuating 
what I agree with you, a, a very sort of, um, how do I put it? I agree with you, a generalized objection to the sexual urge itself, which leads towards crazy results. Such as, we have now sex trafficking laws. Can anyone disagree that taking someone from her home, you know, robbing her of her freedom, transporting her someplace else to be a prostitute is a bad thing? No, that's a very bad thing. But we've now molded American law. We've gone too far. We've, the fetish has gone too far. We've molded American law to equate all prostitution with sex trafficking. Right. So that typical vice raids are now marketed, and I'm using that word advisedly, marketed as sex trafficking stings. A lot more money flows from the government in that regard. A lot more publicity is gained. And, you know, in the end, it's the women, and it's generally women, who suffer because uh, cops aren't subtle. And, you know, when they're, you know, a lot of women can be really forgiven for mistaking their rescues for, for particularly aggressive uh, arrests. And so, you know, we've taken the notion of, you know, human trafficking is a huge problem, both domestically and, and on an international level. But the number of sex trafficking prosecutions dwarfs that of people who work at nail salons, who clean, you know, who clean your tables at restaurants, et cetera. That's a dog. Uh, and, and, <laughs> I could have guessed that. My, uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, why is it that we put so much effort toward sex trafficking rather than human labor trafficking? Sex sells, sex inspires, sex yeah. makes, sex makes people take, get up and take notice. And, and it apparently makes them, uh, it incapacitates their ability to make distinctions. Okay. We're back from, uh, a dog dog uh, interruption. So I was saying that uh, this, you know, the, the this concern with sex, the obsession, the fetish, whatever it is, also incapacitates us from making distinctions, at least in the United States, not so much in some other cultures. But, you know, I'm, I'm always amused when you hear about, um, you know, sexual exploitation of uh, prostitutes in Vietnam or Cambodia or Southeast Asia, what have you. But no one ever talks about the exploitation of women working for pennies a day in sweatshops in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. So there's always this sort of like we have to save them from the sex trade where they might be making 50 times as much uh, to like push them into a situation where their only option is to work at the Nike factory. And, or worse, yes. or, or worse, yeah, or or starve to death, or or you know an abusive marriage. When I was living in Thailand, some of the most interesting, intelligent women I met were former prostitutes who now owned businesses. A lot of the cafes and guest houses and places where tourists go are owned by former prostitutes who, you know, they learned English and they saved their money and they bought a business and they didn't get married and sort of get, you know, submerged in that part of Thai culture. And so you find these strong, smart, funny, sort of multicultural uh, women in their 40s and 50s who are running these places. Now, granted, I didn't meet typical Thai women who did marry. So, you know, it's a very self-selected group. Um, but they were anything but victims, you know? Well, yes. I mean, in fact, there's a, there's a, uh, 
a chapter in my book called you know, Sex Trafficking, The Hazards of Com Compassion, in which I trace the sex rescue industry from the United States, funded heavily by the government, where we team up with local corrupt police, often Christian evangelical missions, uh, team up with local corrupt police to stage filmed raids on brothels. And very, very often on these raids, you will have American starlets such as Demi Moore or Mira Sorvino or the others, you know, who look fantastic and and uh, who are, you know, part of the film crew. And they rescue, quote, rescue these women. Uh, and I trace what happens in some of these raids. And very often the women, after they've been rescued, uh, are locked up and they escape the rescuers and go back to work in the brothels. Why is this? You know, because they love sex work? No, but it's work. And we make a distinction between sex work and other work that I think is false. And it certainly isn't seen by the women themselves. I mean, human trafficking is a labor problem. It's not necessarily a sex problem. And you're right. I mean, when you have a, a teenage girl who, uh, is supporting her family back home through prostitution. That's not an argument for prostitution, but it's a reason for prostitution. And it also highlights a very a much larger labor issue, which needs to be addressed. So, yeah, it makes absolute sense to me that you would be meeting independent women running their own businesses who were for, foreign prostitutes. The idea that I advance in the book, and it's not a novel one, <laughs> is what can we do with our resources to help keep women safe, to keep them from being abused, to keep them from being trafficked, rather than to keep them from having a sexual experience. And, um, you know, we simply get confused in that regard. It's very strange that we have for us annual sex trafficking rankings in which prostitution is absolutely equated with sex trafficking. Countries like Australia and Germany are in tier one. They're our favorite countries. But prostitution is legal there, uh, whereas um, countries that have prostitution that is illegal and that there, there, are th there are at least theoretically measures against it, such as Thailand and Cambodia, consistently get the lowest rankings. It's a political thing. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. There's a real looking glass quality to so much of this, you know, where everything, if you look at it long enough, it turns out to be the opposite of what it claims to be. You know, like, for example, a lot of this anti-trafficking energy claims to be about empowering women. And yet what it's doing is ignoring women who have said, you know what, given the options available to me, this is what I want to be doing. It or or even to be more frank, this is what I have to be doing. Right. People make miserable labor decisions all the time sure. in this country, picking, you know, the woman I mean, whoever your listeners are, when they go to a restaurant, think about the who the person is that's cleaning up their tables. You know, what does that person want to be cleaning up tables? Does the guy with the leaf blower outside want to be operating that? No, he's making a decision to have uh, a very labor-intensive, often dangerous life in exchange for for money. If we put a different quality on sex and say sexual exploitation is somehow worse then stopping the sex isn't going to do it. What you need to do is try and give people more opportunity in a, in, you know, uh, to make real money in a, in a legitimate way. But in the meantime, 
What can you do to keep the women safe? What can you do to keep them from being hurt? Entrapped, enslaved. Well, that's you know again the, the looking glass quality. Exactly. We say we're trying to protect these women, but what we've done is we've made we've made the the thing that they are like at least let's you know assume for the sake of argument that many of them are choosing freely to be engaged in. We've made that illegal, so now they can't come forward and say you know, there's this pimp who's, who's moving in on me, or I got robbed by a John, or I got beat up by a John. So what we're doing is creating an environment in which it's, it leads to the exact thing that we claim we're trying to prevent. Like what you said earlier about the sex registries for children. It's absurd to create a structure that actually produces the thing you claim you're trying to prevent. But that seems to be the pattern of governmental of of governmental response on so many levels the war on terror it's creating terror you know the war on drugs created methamphetamines and cocaine if people were just chewing coca leaves and smoking weed none of that shit would have happened you know it's uh yeah you know and just to take it out of southeast asia well one the you know i've got in the book reports from um from prostitution advocacy groups in Chiang Mai and other places saying, you know, our real danger comes from the Mira Sorvinos of the world who who come with these rescue groups. That's who the women are scared of. But taking it to London and New York and L.A., taking it to the cities where we live, um, you know, if a, if a Bulgarian woman takes herself to London and takes up sex work because that's because she's not getting paid. She's not making any money and has no opportunity or a Ukrainian woman. If, if, if she overstays her visa, which is going to be likely, she's not going to be protected. If, as you said, a pimp moves in or she suffers violence, you know, she's going to be scared to report a threat to her safety. And uh, in fact, in 2014, the, the U.N. issued a scathing report against the United States saying we have to stop treating trafficked women like criminals. OK, if a woman has a reasonable fear that she's that she's in physical danger, I say that the first opportunity that the first responsibility of the state in exchange for the right to kill us and in exchange for the right to take our money in taxes is to protect us. And and, um, you know, if I ever get myself in a position of of being heard by lawmakers, that that is my stance, is that we need to suspend the sex negative aspects of the laws and start to look towards the physical protective aspects of the laws and stress those. Sex comes later. You know, Switzerland did something really interesting. I mean, it's too much to ask that we will that we would ever have that level of rationality. But they they. They outlawed streetwalking in Zurich. So what did they do? Uh, they set up what's called sex boxes, where prostitutes can arrange. You know, when they arrange their clients, they can they can go to these places just outside the city. They look like self car wash places where the car drives in. There's a panic button close by. There are cops close by, and if the John starts to get uh, abusive. There is services for the women right then and there to press a button that John can't get out of his car easily, and they'll be protected. And the quote that I have in the book from the from one of the vice officers in Zurich 
is these women don't want to be doing this for the rest of their lives. We might as well keep them pr- protected while they're you know doing this work. And I read that and I thought, okay, well, that's about as rational a statement as I've ever heard. Um, can we hope that that would be said by someone in, in law enforcement here? Well, yeah, we can still hope. And, you know, who knows? Do you think, do you feel encouraged by the changes in drug laws recently? Do you think that's a harbinger of, of changes in laws with sexuality or are they on completely separate tracks? I don't know. I am in, encouraged by that. I think it could be uh, the rejection against the Reagan era mandatory sentencing laws for, you know, weed, et cetera, uh, is probably a fact that it's just, you know, governments can't afford it anymore. They're just, you can't have an anti-tax stance and a stance in which you're paying for people to go to jail for 60 years for trafficking weed. Will that lead towards a more rational sexual regulatory scheme? I don't think they're really connected so much, but, um, you know, clearly, Chris, we're a hell of a lot better off now than we were 60 years ago. Give, uh, you know, even with all the complaining you and I have been doing for the last few minutes, there's a <laughs> there's a few much, decades, man. <laughs> yeah, uh, there is <laughs> there is a there is a slow two steps forward, one step back movement toward physical autonomy, toward protection. And, um, you know, I, I can only hope. Is there, though? Is there? Because, you know, we can say in some areas there's more rationality. But what we were talking about earlier with these, you know, child, um, you know, the sex offender thing, kids getting put on the sex offender registry for sexting pictures of themselves. There's a lot of, you know, maybe that's the one step back uh, that you're in your formula there. But it feels like... uh, in some areas, there's more rationality, but what what do you think, What what is it about the United States? You know, you've looked at this from so many different perspectives. Am I right in saying that the United States is particularly uh, fucked up about this? You know, because I, I look at Latin American or uh, Mediterranean countries, you know, Italy, Spain, and I mm-hmm. see... Okay, maybe legally um, there's it's a little more relaxed, but culturally it's a lot more relaxed. And then I look at places like Germany, the Scandinavian countries, and I see both. I see legally it's far more relaxed. Culturally, it's kind of they're a little more uptight, maybe. Mm-hmm. But I mean, have you read this? The the accounts of like the there was, I don't remember where it was, maybe the Atlantic a year or two ago, there was this really great article um, by an American woman who lived in Holland. And she was talking about how her teenage daughter, um, how they were dealing with her sexuality and how her friends in Holland dealt with their teenage kids coming to become sexual beings and how that compared to the United States where we just sort of, you know, insist that it's not happening. It can't possibly happen. And in Holland, they're like, the kid's 14 and she's got a boyfriend. They invite the boyfriend over for dinner. If they like him, he's a good kid. You know, they all talk about sex and condoms and being safe. And then the kid's welcome to spend the night in the girl's bedroom, you know? And so, and then, you know, of course she ends the piece by looking at, Rates of teen pregnancy, rates of sexually transmitted diseases, rates of abuse, 
far lower in those countries than they are in the United States. Yeah, it's true. Uh, we, you know, it, what's kind of curious is the shift that's happened in Western Europe compared to the U.S. I mean, uh, one of the surprises that 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 I found in the course of my research was, you know, after World War II, uh, there really weren't many worse places to be gay in the world than than Holland, you know, or Germany. And uh, it was and there was no harder place to get an abortion or even to get birth control information than Holland or Sweden. The, you know, the, the most sterilizations of people like uh, prostitutes happened in places like Denmark and Sweden. Somehow, I don't know why smarter people than me have thought about this. You know, there was much more of a shift towards a more frank kind of rationality about human behavior in the starting, say, in the 60s and 70s. Here, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think America embraces the irrational a lot more uh, readily, and we also have a very, very strong, very strong religious culture. And I'm Jewish, and I think it comes, you know, as much from the Orthodox Jewish community as it does from the evangelical right on the Christian side. The holdover and the strengthening of the religious aspects in the United States compared to the really the fact that Western Europe is really basically a very secular place um, probably goes a long way to explaining things. Mm, that's a good point. That, that's a very good point. It just point. does. You I, know. Yeah, I would, I, and I would add to that, I, I think the racial tension in American history is probably, it feeds into this in some way. Because there's some real crazy shit. I, and maybe you can confirm this for me. Someone told me, or I read somewhere recently, um, that in uh, pre-Civil War South, it was common for uh, wealthy plantation owners who had slaves and, and you know, people, black people working in the house, in the kitchen and serving the table and all that, that they would have the men serve at the table with no pants on. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> you didn't get that from... From me, <laughs> was uh, it in your but, book? No, no. But you know, there was a kind of a, there was always a fascination with the black male anatomy, you know, and whether it's true or not, the idea of them being, you know, uh, more well endowed than whites, uh, you know, definitely sunk in, and they saw that as both a threat and an object of fascination. I mean, clearly in lynching which, you know, went on, uh, you know, deep into this century. And, uh, the misuse of the lynching victims' genitals was really the highlight of the show. In fact, people would take home little pieces, you know, as souvenirs. And, you know, a huge percentage of lynchings happened as a result of real or imagined sexual threats by yeah. black men. Right. And so the, you know, that, uh, carried forward. And, and also, because black women uh, in the South were raped in such you know, fantastically enormous numbers by their landowners, the sort of companion myth that went with that is they were hypersexual and that they wanted it. 
Right. What a shock. And so the notion of the promiscuous welfare queen carried over. Right. The, the black woman that can't keep her legs closed. The black woman that just churns out children. And the, you know, the, the, the really pernicious myth that they churn out kids in order to generate fantastic amounts of welfare, you know, wealth and all that. So, you know, these myths carry forward. Yes, I think America's racial divide, there weren't miscegenation laws anywhere in Europe. We had the miscegenation laws here. We had slavery, uh, you know, that and the use of sexual restrictions on on minorities, not just blacks, by the way, but on minorities um, is probably yet another you know, uh, unstable chemical thrown into the American psyche yeah, when it way. comes to sex. It's a good yeah. way of putting it. You know, that whole thing about um, blacks having uh, unusually large penises and, and yeah. very strong sex drive and being a threat to decent white women and that, that whole dynamic, you may, I'm sure you already know this, um, applied in uh, Europe to Jews. Oh, yeah. Right. And we, yeah, oh, oh, absolutely. The racial defilement laws in Germany, I cover some of those trials. You know, the same slanders that Jewish men were sexually, you know, insatiable, Jewish women were, you know, uh, vampires that lured unsuspecting Aryan men, you know, to their, <laughs> to their lairs. When we do that, we did the same to the Chinese. The, uh, you know, actually, the worst racism other than blacks that was ever been exercised in this country were toward Chinese. And we presumed that all Chinese women were prostitutes. We presumed that all Chinese women had sexually transmitted diseases to which they were immune, but we were not. You know, except when you do that, you heaping sexual slanders like that on uh, on minority groups is almost um, well, it's a companion to an exercise of economic power and political power. Yeah. Uh, just a reminder, we're talking about uh, the book, The Boundaries of Desire, recently published by Eric Berkowitz, my guest. That sounded really official, didn't it? It did. It I'm, sounded good. I'm getting professional. Uh, the uh, The book came out, what, a week ago? Yeah. How's, it, it's selling really well. Last time I looked on Amazon, you were like into four digits, which from is, what I understand, yeah, it, you know, Amazon sales ranking numbers are really maddening. You you can go from the sales ranking like three to two million in about about five <laughs> seconds. It's sold out on Amazon very quickly to my endless sh- chagrin. But uh, you know, yeah, it's selling yeah. well, and I'm I'm very gratified. Yeah, yeah, that the same thing happened to me, man, with Sexaton. I I told the publisher. Dan Savage is going to say all this great stuff. He's going to write it in his column. He's going to have me on. Prepare you, thyself. Prepare, yeah. yeah, buy more because they only they only ordered five thousand copies, and <laughs> and I told them like he's got millions of readers. So this is this is this is Dan fucking Savage, and this yeah, is yeah. what he's going to say because Dan told me like I'll you know I'll, this will come out Monday. This is what I'm going to say. Like he really you know he's a pro. He knows how this shit goes, mm-hmm. and. uh and they just patted me on the head and said, we know what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Turned out Chris, they didn't. Don't even get me started. On this <laughs> well, yeah. I'll never publish another book with, with Harper. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I've already burned that bridge. But, 
Yeah, you keep your mouth shut there, Eric. Anyway, Foundries <laughs> is, uh, see, seems to be doing really well, and, and That's uh, what no one tell, tells me, and I'm thrilled, obviously. Yeah. Well, and I heard you on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, which was a triumph in on many different levels. One, just getting on that show is fantastic. I never got on it. And two... Uh, having a conversation with Terry Gross about sex in which she doesn't like r- run screaming from the room is a, a great accomplishment. You, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> or giggle like a, like a nine-year-old girl. Yeah. Yeah. I love her. I think she's one of the best interviewers around, but she's, she's like clearly palpably uncomfortable talking about sex. Yeah. Uh, that was a very surreal experience. Nowhere near as easygoing as it, as it is with you. But <laughs> I like her, and I'm thrilled that she gave me the nod. I mean, that's a big get. Yeah. Yeah. And, and hopefully it opens up a lot more to you, because a lot of people, a lot of journalists are listening to that. And so that's, that's fantastic. Hey, did you see um, an article that came out a couple of weeks ago? It's been getting a lot of play in, I think it was Vanity Fair, about Tinder and dating apps. Uh, uh, yeah, I did see that. The dating apocalypse. I, I was quoted in that. Um, oh, really? What'd you say? Um, well, you know, it, it, it would, it's a cautionary tale, I think. And, and I knew this going into it, that you can't control what a journalist is going to do, right? They've got their agendas and they try to fit you into it. Um, but her take on the modern dating scene was very clearly alarmist and apocalyptic. And um, so she was looking for sort of evolutionary background from me. And, and actually, my attitude was like, I really don't think it's that big a deal, right? But she didn't want to hear that. Um, and instead, I ended up being sort of an apologist for promiscuity and... I, I think I sort of came across as a creepy old dude, which, you know, <laughs> isn't, isn't hard to do. Um, but the the line that she quoted that I've seen now quoted many other places is I said that, um, you know, in, in our prehistoric environment, we may have been promiscuous, but there weren't a lot of strangers around. There were very few strangers. So, um, you know, it's Good kind point. of like... Uh, our our desire for sweets. There just weren't a lot of sweet things around. So we've got that hunger for it that's carried over into the modern world. And now suddenly there's a surplus. So maybe what she's describing with all this anonymous hooking up on the dating apps is like a form of psychosexual obesity. And so that's that, that little phrase has resonated out into the world now. And so, but that's a good observation, I think. That, I mean, I wouldn't feel bad about that. Well, you know, like a lot of observations, I think it's it's good in context, but taken yeah. out of context, it just makes it sound like, you know, like I'm fat shaming people or something. Oh, okay. You know? Okay. Well, I, I'll, I'll go back and have a look. I saw the headline. Honestly, this whole Tinder, you know, freak out of the last couple of weeks, I, I had a similar feeling to you. I just sort of shrugged and thought, who cares? You know, people are going to find each other how they find each other. I, uh, so I'll go back and read your quote. Yeah. I mean, these are like these little sort of, you know, manufactured news stories every few weeks. It's, it's summer, Chris, who cares? You know, <laughs> it's a slow news period. It's a slow news period. So we talk about shark attacks yeah. and Tinder. Yeah. 
and Bill Cosby. I think I think you and I already talked about Bill Cosby. By the way, I just want to say uh, while we're recording here, I'll mention it in the intro as well. But if anyone skips the intro, uh, Eric and I, this is part two of a conversation we started about a week ago, and then we had technological problems with Skype and the sound quality and all that. So if we repeat ourselves, it's not that we're drunk and oblivious. It's that uh, we don't remember everything we said a week ago. Although it's, well, we are drunk and oblivious. So. And, and drunk and oblivious, exactly. Um, so, okay, l- let me, let me uh, pull you into another uncomfortable area, although you're, you're intrepid. I like that about you. Um, wh- how do consent laws apply to animals? Because I remember in your first book, I think you talked about these these trials in the south of France where a donkey was accused of seducing a man. Oh, yeah, yeah. The donkey – or no, pigs often would oh. give birth to little piglets that looked like the farmhand. And so <laughs> – honestly. And so, you know, they would look at the farmhand and say, you know, Clem, what have you been up to? Clem. Uh, <laughs> Or whatever. Uh, I That's didn't great. focus on our friends in the animal kingdom too much on this book, so I really can't tell you a lot. Um, Did I ever? You know, bestiality's been separated from homosexuality. Uh, that's a good thing because traditionally they were proscribed in the same laws. They were all, you know, they were all considered all most sexual deviance was considered as part of sex that was not for procreation. Right. So if you're yeah. having sex with an animal or, or with another man or another woman, right. you know, that was how it was categorized. And that isn't that what sodomy means? Yes. What a weird word that includes fucking a pig and getting a blowjob. Yep. That is uh, so, so strange. It's, you know, kind of a, a meta set of, of non procreative non-marital sex. So, you know, the fact that I could turn my attention to homosexuality and to that kind of thing without running up against bestiality laws all the time probably says quite a, says a lot right about the way the law's gone. Right. Did I, did I ever tell you the story Dan t- Savage told me about the guy who called his podcast with um uh, he left, you know, there's an answering machine. So he left the message and said, uh, you know, I have sex with horses and I don't see why there, that should be against the law. The, you know, obviously the horse is fine with it. I'm fine with it, you know? And so mm-hmm. he sort of expected Dan to, to be, um, an ally and Dan called him back and said, listen, I just want to clarify, are you fucking the horse or is the horse fucking you? <laughs> and there's this long silence and finally, the guy says, "I'm not gay." Oh, okay, all right. So that—that's a real confused character <laughs> in lots of important ways. Uh, he's talking. To, he's talking to Dan Savage, and he's like, "How dare you think I might be gay? Of, of course, I'm fucking the horse." But then the question would be, you know, is it a male horse or a female horse? You know, these kinds of details have to be unearthed in every possible circumstance. <laughs> I, you know, uh, again, a horse, the horse can probably, you know, uh, defend himself. A little poodle, you know, you got to think about the fate of the poodle. I don't know. There, there is those those kinds of laws are holdovers and, you know, they're enforced to the extent that the law wants to get at someone. Right. Just thank God that homosexuals are not being uh, – well – Rick Santorum 
notwithstanding, right, you know, right. uh, homosexuals and and those who enjoy animals are not always spoken of in the same breath. Yeah, at least not among decent company. Um, yeah, it, it is weird. I mean, not to get too 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 far into the weirdness here, but you know, it it does strike me as so strange. And this sort of gets back to some of the trafficking stuff we were talking about earlier. You know, you can buy a goat and take it home and you know kill it and skin it and eat it. Yeah. If if you happen to fuck it at some point in there, you're in trouble. You know, it's like I don't, I don't really get it. Um, <laughs> I yeah. never thought of it like that, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> they they have <laughs> the only thing you can't do with your goat is fuck it. You yeah. Can, uh, yeah. You can do everything. Duncan Trussell, a friend of mine who's a, a comedian, had this bit. Oh, oh, actually, I probably shouldn't talk about it. He always says, "Don't talk about bits on on podcasts," but it involves that discrepancy. Of how, like, in some cases, it's legal to shoot people, but, you know, uh, yeah. Anyway, I, <laughs> I shouldn't get into that. I don't want to give away any of Duncan's jokes on the podcast. That would be terrible. Um, uh, so you're, what's the future? Are you going to keep doing this kind of work? Are you, uh, where do you go next? The future of sex in America? Because you've done the distant past, the recent past. What is your... You're in a you're an incredibly thorough and productive researcher and writer. Are you doing this all yourself, or do you have a a team out there or something? No, I don't. It's all me, dude. Uh, dude you're blowing me out of the water here. <laughs> Hardly. I, I, you know, you just pay attention to any subject for a while, and things tend to open up. I don't know. I mean, I've got a few projects in mind. Some have to do with sex. Some don't. I think I might give this subject a rest for just a little while um, enough. And you, I don't think, are going to be – your next book isn't about sex, is it? No, no. I'm tired of talking about sex. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny how it – and maybe it's the age I'm at. I I don't know. But, um, yeah, I'm definitely feeling like enough enough is enough. And maybe I'll revisit it later. I'd like to, I've, I've talked about this other podcast before. After I finish this book, I'd like to at least um, toy with the idea of writing fiction, mm-hmm. um, you know, set in prehistory. Fascinating. So, yeah, because, you know, like you, if, if you've already got the, the research done, you know, it's nice to find new ways to put it together, you know, and to use it. So you don't have to go back and re-research a whole new area. And stretch your muscles in a different way. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully, you know, I've got this fantasy. It may not be true, but, you know, like you're very familiar with this, writing nonfiction is like the biggest homework assignment you've ever had. It's just, <laughs> it's huge. Huge. Yeah. And you have this incredible fidelity to the truth. I mean, I'm constantly asking. I'm constantly double checking that I'm full of shit. So I'm, I'm, I'm always I mean, any fact that you see in my books has been put through a very strong doubt meter by me and by others. And so to write fiction and try and get it a different kind of truth without, you know, perfect fidelity to you know, year, time, place, et cetera, yeah. might, might be, uh, well, I consider people who write fiction the much more creative, uh, accomplished people. So that's the next, you know, I don't know if I'm quite ready for it yet, Chris. I'm always one step behind you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, my fantasy is that I can sit on some island somewhere, 
without an internet connection, with no books open next to me, with no yeah. PDFs, you know, strewn about the room that I'm hopping around like a, you know, like a bee buzzing between flowers. Uh, you know, I could just pull it straight out of my ass. So that's, that's my fantasy. I'm sure it's not that easy, but we'll see. Um, so, so, uh, you don't have any, like, nothing's clearly on deck, no book contracts signed and, you know, ready to roll. No, I'm going to play this one out for a little while. You know, I do a, a lot of legal work. And so I've got a, I've got some, you know, asylum cases that are hopping and some, some, some work that I'm doing, you know, not alone in my, you know, dungeon writing. And so I've got to, you know, go back to those for a little while. And then I'll just sort of lie fallow for a few months and, you know, come back up. But yeah, I've got three or four ideas. I don't even want to talk about it now, but yeah. I've got some some stuff. Fair enough. Does, yeah. does having published these books impact your legal work at all? Do you get like more or maybe less work because of this? Well, the kind of work that I'm doing now, uh, yes, I think I, I get more work. I mean, I do a lot of pro bono work for people that can't afford uh, legal help, asylum cases, domestic abuse cases, things like that. And so, you know, those cases often come through nonprofits and foundations. And so if I, you know, build up a nice list of publications, then they see me as a more substantial character. Uh, you know, and I start getting the more interesting cases, but the interesting cases aren't the ones that I'm looking for. I always ask for the lost cause cases because I don't really give a shit about my, 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 my personal reputation. So I'll take the cases that, you know, people are scared to take cause they might lose, uh, because I think those are the cases in which the person probably needs someone. If you can't win, at least go down swinging, you know, give the person a shot. So, um, you know, it's, it's all part of a piece. It's all what I do during the week. So one thing leads to another. Well, that's, that's fantastic, man. That, that is really you. admirable. Um, you know, cause the law is so confusing and so stacked against really normal is. people and f- to have, oh I mean, I know, you know, public defenders are doing fantastic work, but they're so overworked. They're so over- underfunded. You know, that's just part of stacking the deck against them. So to have someone like you who's willing to step in, even though I know you can't do it more than a few times a year because of the amount of work that's required. But to be just to have give your time for something like that is truly admirable. How it's does really fulfilling when you know, when you win, when you can actually improve someone's life and they turn to you and say thank you. I mean, that's that's a warm, fuzzy feeling that I um, that I love. Well, and, you know, how often do we get a chance to, you know, change the course of someone's life for the better? You know, yeah. that's that's a very unusual, special thing to be able to do. How did you get to be a lawyer who doesn't give a shit about his reputation? Well, <laughs> I mean, I when I returned from Europe to, to the United States, I came back having already written the first book. And I was facing a very long, lonely process of trying to get it published. Uh, And I came back with kind of a vengeance. I mean, for 25 odd years, I did work for media companies, you know, wealthy individuals and very thankless. I mean, it was stimulating intellectually. But at the end of a case, three, four years long, you I often had this sort of, you know, empty feeling. So I, I, uh, you know. 
financially, I didn't need to make the money. And so I just hurled myself into doing, you know, pro, pro bono work. And I, and I meant it. And, uh, you know, if you stick at something long enough, all of a sudden good things start to happen. Have you thought about, about writing about some of these cases, like uh, sort of the Oliver Sacks of the legal world? Uh, yes, I have. And unfortunately, for a lot of these cases, I've signed heavy non-disclosure uh, agreements. Right. I would have to doctor the cases so much that I, I would probably do better just dreaming them up. But, you know, in the course of doing these cases, I've seen a, a lot of situations that I would, could never have possibly imagined uh, and if we're talking about writing fiction or, you know, writing something up, um, that's all raw material. So long as it can't be traced back to who these people actually are. Right. And there's definitely, uh, you know, there's a, a history of lawyers turned fiction writers who did very well for themselves. Yeah. 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 Well, interesting. Hey, you ever need anyone to read over a rough draft? I'm your man. All right, Chris. Listen, Eric, thank you so much. I'm going to I'm going to put this together with the stuff that we salvaged from the first and hopefully it'll be more or less a coherent conversation for people. Um, Marvelous. And you get that up. Uh, Tell me, was the first one posted or not? You waited, right? No, no, I waited. Yeah, I waited. So I'll put it all together and uh, I'll put it up uh, Monday. Fantastic. Chris. This was great, man. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate your time. Have a good time tonight in Hollywood. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day why do we waste our time thinking about a Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say (laughs) When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby It's a big deal If you want to be free Say what you want to feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms 
would dance into the ground.